Welcome to the Pop Culture Researcher, a podcast program about the people who study pop culture phenomenon to gain insight into society, communities, and the changing lives in Asia. I'm your host Eva Tsai, recording from Taipei. On each show, we feature conversations with a pop culture researcher based in Asia. What is pop culture? Music, sports, TV, film, video games, latest meme on the internet. I go with a very inclusive definition here. Could be a current or past development that occupies the time, income, energy, and passion of people. I talk with people whose job is to unpack the meanings and structures of pop culture. Who does that kind of job? University teachers, graduate students, and independent observers. Some are experts on local pop culture. Some are finesse analysts on transnational interactions. I'm curious about what they study, the research experience, and what they were like when they were young. That is because I hope to encourage young people to become aware of the value and possibility of pop culture. In other words, check out this line of work called research, and learn a thing or two about your neighbors in Asia. We feature Cookie Chu on our first episode. If you read kanji or Chinese characters, Cookie's name could mean Princess of Autumn Chrysanthemum. Quite romantic, almost like an artist name for girls' comics. Girls' comics is one reason why I invited her to be on the show when she was in high school in Korea, 1980s. She drew comics for Donginji. Donginji is a long word from the Japanese term doujinshi, and it means self-publishing magazines, comic stories, and novels by amateur artists. Twenty some years later, Cookie researched and published an article about the Korean female comic book artist in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. During this time, South Korea banned Japanese books and media products to prevent its citizens from being corrupted by its former colonizer of 35 years. But Japanese magazines and comic books were still in circulation in underground markets and manhwa bang. Manhwa bang are comic book reading rooms near apartment buildings where young people could read on site or borrow the books home for a fee. As the readership for girls' comic books expanded, the vendors in Korea had to find ways to survive the official crackdown on Japanese culture. So underground publishers started to hire local artists, including mechanical tracers, to copy Japanese titles quickly. In this process, certain creative inventions began to emerge. Cookie's study focused precisely on these ghost artists who struggle to have a presence under an oppressive time. Currently, Cookie Chu is assistant professor at the Faculty of Liberal Arts in Sofia University, Tokyo. She teaches media studies, animation studies, gender, race, and pop culture. Many of her students are international students who went to Japan because they were drawn to Japanese popular culture. Cookie often challenges her students to see pop culture beyond national terms. Cookie was born in Seoul, Korea, and lived in the United States between the ages of one and a half and eleven. She went back to Korea for her secondary school and college education. Then she went to the U.S. again to get her master's degree from the University of Texas at Austin. She will come back to Asia to complete her Ph.D. from the University of Tokyo. Subsequently, she did postdoc research in Singapore and taught in the communications department at Tulane University in Louisiana. I first met her when we were both graduate students in the U.S. I was in Iowa. Our paths continued to cross for the next seventeen years, mostly in East Asia. In addition to studying the South Korean comic book artists in the nineteen sixties, seventies, and eighties, Cookie also wrote about Korean animation industry of the same period. She published an article in the ACG journal Macademia. 
and it is about Korean animation workers and their struggles to invent a national identity in the long and undervalued process of working as subcontracted laborers for the Japanese anime industry. The Korean artists were supposed to stick closely to the guidelines from the Japanese anime companies, but they invented ways to assert an exaggerated national identity, which Cookie termed hyperbolic nationalism in the title. And this is referring to little gestures like inserting obviously Korean items in the drawing and arguing for artistic superiority while mimicking what was originally Japanese anime work. I thought her article is also about the cultural history of Korean animation workers as it acknowledges the subjective agency of the artist. I use cookie study in teaching because the subcontracted labor story is familiar to Taiwan and yet so understudied. Japan has been outsourcing animation workers from South Korea, Taiwan, China, the Philippines, and Vietnam. I also used her article to promote a transnational perspective on the history of Japanese animation. That's right, the history of Japanese animation does not belong solely to Japan. You could probably use an East Asian perspective. In June 2016, I caught up with Cookie when she came to Taiwan for an animation conference. I asked about her youth and the reasons that drove her to study Korean manga and animation. And the following are excerpts from our conversations. So what were your favorite animes when you were growing up? So the two animations I loved the most in the 80s was Laputa. That was like my favorite. And then the other was Vampire Hunter D. Those were the two films that just blew me away. Laputa came out, was it 86, I think? And Vampire Duty came out in 85. So they were like really at a similar time. But man, Vampire Duty blew me away because it was a mature. It was like, you know, for adults, right? So it has sex and like all that kind of gothic stuff. It was a horror genre. I loved it. Laputa is a very solid storyline. It's a beautiful film. And for me, that was a great inspiration. I saw Naosika, I saw all of his Totoro. I never liked him actually, but it was Laputa. And if you really analyze his films, Laputa is the most faithful to the Hollywood three-act structure. Now that's why you could really appreciate that story, I think the development and the, the climax, it's just such a great film. When Cookie lived in Los Angeles as a child, she saw The Tale of White Serpent on KSCI, a cable TV channel that features Japanese programs for overseas Japanese. The 1958 animation film was based on a popular Chinese folktale, and its female protagonist left a strong impression on Cookie. There was a cable television for Japanese viewers in LA, even in the 70s. So um, I saw this animation, and my parents recorded it. So I watched it over and over again when I was in Korea. It was The Tale of the White Serpent. It's the first full-length feature animation called Hakujaden. They show that, and so that was like the first Japanese animation film that I've seen. It's and based uh, on the Chinese film. Is it? Yes, yeah. yes, the white yeah, serpent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I didn't know it was Japanese, but that was my favorite. Favorite when I was a kid. Like what, what was it that attracted you to that's a very good point why did I like it so much because I think the female protagonist is pretty strong she took charge of her destiny and even as a kid I think I really felt that and I in a weird way identify with uh, the boy because the female is a snake right so you can't identify with the with the female so you identify with the human which is like the boy but I really appreciated like the female protagonist so she was like the first strong female protagonist that I saw in an animation in junior high school and high school, Cookie was sent to a private school in downtown Seoul. 
She was still trying to get a handle on Korean language after living in Los Angeles for almost 12 years. She commuted on subway and transferred daily at Myeongdong. That was where she got in touch with the underground market of Japanese manga, anime videos, and magazines. So I went to the, the underground market and got copies of Japanese、um, animation. Or also sometimes the neighborhood video stores will have copies of this. That's where, how I saw Vampire Hunter D. I would buy、um, magazines. Japanese anime magazines in downtown Seoul, and then I would learn about what was going on in Japan. So it was like real time information. Then I know, oh, there's a thing called Nausicaa. I want to watch.、It. You try to find a way to get a copy of that, and、uh, sometimes the bookstore owner will tell you, "There's that shop over there. You can get a copy." So you get it. You know, it's like through word of mouth information. And so I was pretty well versed in that underground market. Where was the underground market? Myeongdong. Myeongdong. Yeah, it was in that Myeongdong. Was Yeah, well, the base yeah. camp for yeah, yeah, it was totally, and、uh, you know, there's like a Chinese embassy there in the yeah, dead center yeah, of Myeongdong,、yeah. and there's like a、uh, what do you call Hajiao like a school, right? There's like、uh, the Chinese、right. Korean school, and right in front of there, all these bookstores, there were Japanese bookstores, so it's almost like that section was kind of、uh, unregulated. The Japanese manga magazines inspired Cookie to self-study Japanese language and draw. She joined Dojinshi Club in high school and got involved in self-publishing. Oh, and the most important thing is I was also a comic book artist, like an underground comic book artist.、I、wasn't just interested in anime. I started out with comic books, right? So,、uh-huh. so when I first went to Korea, I was learning Korean. I think it was my cousins. We happened to go to Myeongdong one winter, and I picked up this comic magazine called Ribbon, and I bought one with my allowance, and I wanted to study the language.、And、that's how I started learning. I self-taught myself Japanese, and then in the process, I got like this very cheap dictionary that people were selling on the bus. For like a dollar or something, and they had like the alphabets. And as I was like studying and memorizing it, I realized the structure was identical to Korean that I was learning. So it was almost like simultaneous when I learned Japanese. So you're learning Korean and Japanese at almost at the same time. And but I was self-teaching myself Japanese based on what I knew from learning Korean. Girls' comic books always have that kunyomi. They have like the hiragana、yeah, next、right. to it. So then. I was able to kind of look up the words, and then my dad bought me like a real thick dictionary when I was in middle school, and then I started studying on my own. At the same time, I started drawing that style myself. In high school, I joined the underground comic book Dojinshi. So there were six Dojinshi at that time in the entire country, and I was I, I belonged to one of them. If you're interested in comics, you're going to be interested in animation. That's how it all started. So, what was your job? Is that to like create stories? All artists created their own stories, and then we had short stories, or sometimes like continuing serials. And you all had to pay a certain amount, and we all went to the underground publishing copy stores, and then we printed out our own dojinshi. And then we would have like meetings, right? Annual, like or biannual、um, exhibitions. At department stores, there was like joint issues sometimes. It was like pretty serious back then. Do you remember the kind of stories you created? Oh yeah, like, of course. Gothic, no, it was very Japanese. That's my my example is precisely that that the Dojinshi artists were so inspired by Japanese. They were living a Japanese life, and my character, the one that I put in, is like Japanese characters. Their names are Japanese, and it was like this imagined kind of form of urban lifestyle that didn't exist in Korea. During our conversations, I urged Cookie to do more research on Korean manga and animation. I sort of did that for my own self-interest. I felt the reference points for manga and animation in Taiwan are overwhelmingly American and Japanese, and here she reflected on the reasons behind her research, which was not about establishing a national identity for Korean manga and anime. Do you think you'll be interested to study the doujinshi scenes in Korea? Not really. Why not? Because I'm more interested in nationalism now and racism, right? And 
Of course, that's embedded in pop culture. I would be interested in examining that. I constantly question my students in my Japanese pop culture club. Why they ask the same question? Like, what? Well, I think that Pokemon is really Japanese, and I said, what aspect of it is Japanese? Well, it's a style. Like, if you really didn't know that this was Japanese anime, would you really see this and say this yellow thing is Japanese? Why? What about it? You are imagining this nationhood on this product, but is the product itself really Japanese? And I think this is my real motivation, all my work, because racism, all of this comes from a certain forms of nationalism. In other words, Cookie studied Korean manga artists and animation industry to critique nationalism in both Korean and Japanese context. Thank you very much for listening to this very first episode of the Pop Culture Researcher. I'm Eva Tsai.